1982, the world was introduced to the Commodore 64. With a whopping 64 kilobytes of RAM, it was state-of-the-art. We were also introduced to Tron, a world that took more than 64 kilobytes to make. In 2010, we were introduced to the iPad with 256 megabits of RAM. We also got Tron Legacy. History shows us that with game-changing technology comes great Tron movies, because Tron Legacy is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, one and all to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A, grades, and B, movies. And every now and then, a movie comes along, and as soon as it gets on the calendar of shows to record, I, I start to geek out because I, I absolutely freaking love the movie and cannot hide my bias at all. Today is one of those episodes because we are talking 2010's Tron Legacy. And equally giddy about this episode, returning to the show is Sean Faust. Sean, welcome back to the show. How are you doing, man? I'm great, man. And I have so many things to say about how this movie even ended up on your show. Thank you so much for having me on again to talk about this, which it's not even that it's not that bad. It's not bad. Oh, it's not bad at all. And it's one of those no. things where this is actually one of the higher rated movies that we have talked about on this show. So, you know, admittedly, you know, the critics were kind of split on it, but it is so much better than what the critics and what the audience, I think, have rated it because, you know, people just don't like, you know, the internet sucks. Let's just be honest. The internet sucks, but... It's okay, because we're not going to the internet, we're going to the grid. As much as you want to say the two might be the same, they're not. They're not. But before we it. but before we tackle 2010's Tron Legacy, it is time to take this amazing sequel and trailerize it. Imagine a world ruled by computers, where corruption isn't just a politician taking a bribe. A world where the citizenry has turned against those they once idolized and fought for. Where a dictator massacres those who are different. We're 2023 now, aren't we? Yeah, we're here. I mean, just look at any Twitch streamer's game room. There's more LED lights there than on the entire grid. Enter Tron Legacy, a sequel 28 years in the making. Following in the footsteps of the groundbreaking film, whose use of computer animation led to futuristic marvels like the TV show Automan. Seriously, look it up. And we're sorry. It's a movie that proves that you can expand a world, create a moody atmosphere without it being a total downer, and lets us bear witness to one of the best evolutions of a soundtrack ever. Tron Legacy. Rated PG for pixelated greatness. I, I, I swear, it's true. Every Twitch streamer's game room feels like Tron at times with the amount of lights that are going around. I don't hate it, but it's there. Either that or uh, ever, construction vests. You ever drive down a highway at night and you see some of these cars or some of these motorcycles, just the way the wheels are lit up and stuff? It's like, come on, seriously? Like, Tron Legacy failed, but you can still build your car? Right? I mean... Honestly, let, let, let's call it out there. Anyone who's got those under LED lights on their car, they just wish they were driving a light cycle. You know it. This is what they wish. 
This movie, let's let's get to the breakdown here. This movie stars Jeff Bridges, Garrett Hedlund, Olivia Wilde, Bruce Boxlitner, James Frain, Michael Sheen, and Bo Garrett, and a very small part played by Killian Murphy. However, there is an almost starring in this one. For the role of Sam Flynn, there were a number of actors who tried out and were under consideration, including Casey Affleck, Chris Pine, Ryan Gosling, and Michael Stahl David, who some people will remember from Cloverfield. Now, Sean, I'm going to put this out to you there. Of those names, do any of them to you seem like a fit for Sam Flynn? No. No, maybe Casey Affleck, maybe because I haven't seen him do that kind of a role. So, and I know he, he does have some kind of range, but you know, for me, while I was watching, I was kind of like, they really wanted Anakin. They really, really wanted Anakin, but he just stopped making movies after all the trash that was talked about him after uh, Jumper. See, I love Jumper too. I thought Jumper was awesome. And it also showed that like a good director... Or a director that actually knows how to direct, I should say, can can get anybody to act. But no, nobody on that list really. Uh, no, no, nobody on that list strikes me. And I thought uh, Garrett Hedlund did a fine job. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's interesting because you know when he's on screen, he kind of feels like he could be Jeff Bridges' son. Like I'm taking a look at you know Casey Affleck and Chris Pine and Ryan Gosling, and they just don't you know, bring across that Jeff Bridges aura that I think Garrett Hedlund actually did uh, bring across. So kudos to him. The film is directed by Joseph Kaczynski. Can you imagine this film is his directorial (laughs) debut? Like, how do you jump in the director's chair and say, oh, by the way, first film, Tron Legacy, go. Uh, Lots of faith. Lots of faith and $170 million, by the way. That was the budget of this film. Apparently, this film had the highest budget for any directorial debut. Like, that's a lot of money thrown at some guy. It's like, okay, cool. Uh, You did architecture? Great. Cool. Let's direct a Tron movie. But that being said, he proved he's a phenomenal director. Then he also went on to direct Oblivion, Top Gun Maverick, and Spiderhead. So there are some good movies in in his filmography after this. This film, at the Saturn Awards, Jeff Bridges won Best Actor and Darren Guilford won for Best Production Design. Also, at the Austin Film Critics Association Awards, and I know you'll agree on this one here, Daft Punk won for Best Original Score for this film. Uh, no duh. However, As they deserved. Right? However, at the uh, at the 83rd Academy Awards, uh, Daft Punk didn't win, but Gwendolyn Yates-Whittle and Addison Teague were nominated for Best Sound Editing. They lost to Inception. And at the MTV Movie Awards, Olivia Wilde was nominated for a breakout star, but she lost to Chloe Grace Moretz for Kick-Ass. I am, I'm not going to lie. I'm surprised, and I I do realize and accept and appreciate that Inception brought a lot of really, really cool stuff to the screen. I'm surprised this didn't win more awards, though. I mean, your thoughts on this? Well, so here's the thing, and we'll we'll go with the uh, Chloe Grace Moretz thing, first of all, because she's a 13-year-old girl playing a 13-year-old girl in a situation that she's not old enough to, like, really understand. So the fact that she's nailing the horror of watching her father burn to death um, and just like being all out funny. But there's a depth to Hit Girl that I think 
Chloe Grace Moretz brings to it. Olivia Wilde, awesome. And I love her as Cora. She's fun. She's uh, quirky. And she's just... Gen- genuinely wants to know everything. Uh, but it's a different kind of performance, and I think, like, Chloe Grace Moretz rightfully won. Music. Let's talk music. Uh, I know Hans Zimmer, uh, or his writing crew, had something to do with Daft Punk as well for this, so Hans Zimmer was winning regardless. Uh, whether it was Inception, which is a phenomenal score, but it's not as good of a score as Tron Legacy. And I do love the score from Inception. Uh, I just hate the movie. The I do, I do. Um, Legacy just—it's one of those. Every now and then, you get a movie where the music is also a character. One of the first instances of this is the score from the 1933 film King Kong. Ganikganak, backwards, if you would like to say it that way. (laughs) And so Max Steiner's score for that is its own character. And you get that every now and then in a film. Can you imagine watching Tron with a symphonic score? It would make no sense. So the fact that we get some kind of uh, string arrangements in a bigger fashion in Tron Legacy, well, things have grown. So it's still all used on synthesizers. So Daft Punk creating that sound to enhance this film, it almost makes it a character and if you listen closely in some of the pieces of music, they used sound effects from the video game. Oh, da- Daft Punk was, you know, absolutely, you know, they understood the assignment of what they were doing with Tron Legacy. Oh my God, yes. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I love the fact that you, that you mentioned like, you know, anything else, right? You, I, I keep flashing back to when they were doing the first Star Wars film. And of course, disco was huge then. And there was all this talk of like, well, we, you know, the studio wants a disco soundtrack because disco's all the rage. Yes, we eventually got some Star Wars disco after the fact, but can you imagine like Star Wars with a more, you know, computer generated disco esque kind of soundtrack? It would just be, it would be worse than the Star Wars Christmas special. Just putting it out. So there. you're talking about the end credits, the end credits music for Moonraker. Oh God. Oh, <laughs> uh, it just no. Just, no, just, you know, let John Williams be John Williams. Let Daft Punk do Daft Punk, and it's all going to be good. This What's wrong with the Star Wars Christmas special? Stir, whip, stir, whip, <laughs> whip, whip, stir. Yeah. Also, you mentioned, though, with the Star Wars thing, and I'd like to bring this up because it, it kind of, like, it's a good template to have. And it's also the template that Daft Punk had going into scoring a Tron Legacy. They've got Tron. So they kind of have a working template of what the music should be like. George Lucas gave John Williams a uh, a rough cut of Star Wars, but with uh, Eric Korngold scores from the old Errol Flynn movies. That's why we've got that swashbuckling sound of Star Wars. It all makes total sense. Clearly, George Lucas knew exactly what he wanted. Clearly, Daft Punk knew what the fans wanted. This, oh, yeah. This film had a budget of $170 million with a worldwide gross of 400 million it lasted one week at the number one spot and it debuted at number one with a 44 million dollar take on the december 17th 2010 weekend also debuting that weekend in in number two 
was Yogi Bear at $16.5 million, and How Do You Know, which debuted at number eight with $7 million. Those numbers coming from boxofficemojo.com. But of course, the reason why we're here is to defend this film from the critics. Over at Metacritic, this film has a meta score of 49, and over at Rotten Tomatoes, the critic score, the tomatometer, is a 51%, and the audience score is only 63 which surprises me a little bit, but I want to draw a comparable here. The original Tron has a tomatometer of 72%, but the audience score is only 69. So Tron Legacy, as far as audience score, is actually on par with the Tron audience. So before we get into, you know, before we get into the, the, the real, you know, why this film is so good, I just wonder, and I'm going to put this out there, I know genre fiction doesn't always play well across the board when it comes to reviews and critics. Is this a situation where it's a victim of its own genre? No. Um, First off, I'm going to say it's a victim of, once again, expectations are poison. People go into a movie thinking, well, this should have this, and it's supposed to kind of have this, because everybody creates their headcanon, and then that's that's the only way it can be. And if it doesn't have those little things that they need it to have, then it sucks. And it's not a good movie. Somebody I went to the midnight showing of this with hated it until they played a video game that I think takes place before it. And it's like, oh, and explain the whole thing. I'm like, dude, everything you're describing to me right now happened in the movie. So people just go in there with their own ideas of what a film should have, especially 28 years after the first movie. Um, just let things be what they're going to be, folks, and just expectations ruin things. So just go in and expect to be entertained. Also, to that thought, you know, you, you think about, you know, whenever they announce they're going to do a reboot or a sequel of something that was, you know, completely iconic, even with with Top Gun, you know, seeing how we're talking about this director here, you know, when they announced that they were going to do a sequel to Top Gun so long after the original Top Gun, you know, people were like, oh, no, no, just leave it be. Let it let it be the the singular awesome entry that it is. Are there some movies where you think are sacred and should not ever be revisited? Like, is, is this one of the situations where people were, were, you know, basically trying to gatekeep their love of Tron? I don't think so. I think it's more of a case of it was a little too advanced. And I... I that, that's not even a gripe of mine, but even watching it the other night, I was kind of like, this is a little too, it's not as gritty as the first movie. It's a little too clean, a little too pure. And even our technology hadn't gone that far yet, but also we're living in Kevin Flynn's world of Encom uh, and his technology. So the, even he talked about the Wi-Fi, like, hey man, I thought of that in 85. So it, it makes sense and it doesn't at the same time. So I could see that being a turnoff to people because it's not like people like, it's not filmed in black and white with the, you know, the colors colored on them. And I, I can see people getting taken out of that. Plus it's also a long movie. So people see a two hour and 10 minute or a two hour and five minute Tron movie. And they're like, what? The first one was only like 90 something minutes. What? Another half hour. What are we going to get from that story? Story buildup. What's wrong with that? I'm, I'm, I'm going to, knowing your music background, I, I, I want to put this out there, okay? Because I, I know you, you love your, your prog metal and like. So 
Queensryche. Back in, you know, back in the 80s, put out one of the best concept albums of all time, Operation Mindcrime. Probably my favorite concept album of all time. Oh, absolutely. So when, uh, when they announced that they were going to do Operation Mindcrime 2, what was your initial reaction? Before even hearing the track, what was your initial reaction? I had long since fallen out of love with them because I just wasn't... Here in the Now Frontier didn't do it for me. Promised Land didn't really do it for me a lot either. It had some good stuff on it, but I was kind of like, eh, I'm, you know, I'm not liking you guys as much as I used to. And also, like, I was a Queen Drake fan from, like, The Warning. So, like, I had the EP, I had The Warning, I had Rage for Order, I had Mind Crime, and Empire at first. Like, that that took me a few listens to get into. So, by the time Operation Mind Crime 2 rolled around, I was like, well, you know what? Maybe they're just pulling themselves up by the bootstraps and they're going to like go and they're going to give me a great album. They didn't. There wasn't even a full complete song on Mind Crime 2. That's my review of Queensryche's Operation <laughs> Mind Crime 2. Soon to be discussed on There Can Only Be One eventually. Um, but yeah, you have to think that that there are, you know, when you see a sequel long after the originals made a beloved original you can see some people almost get their backs up and that might just be it like again thinking music right meatloaf announces he's going to do bad out of hell too i can see some people go to but but that album is iconic how do you go back and make a sequel to it and that i don't even think was even a concept album really but still you know but let's get back to tron legacy here and let's get to the breakdown as to why this film is so good we're going to start with garrett headland and we had originally talked a little bit about him at the beginning as sam flynn how was garrett headland for you I thought he was just fine. You mentioned it too that like th- he does bring some Jeff Bridges isms to it. Not as I, I think I think Gosling would have done a great job because Gosling is just a perfect actor that no matter the role you give him, he's nailing it. But I don't think Gosling would have had the look down, which is why I said nobody on that list originally. But I think it might have been overkill. Not that Gosling would have like done that on purpose. It's just that Kevin Flynn is so iconic. So even when Garrett Hedlund says, now that's a big door, he's not like, now that is a big door. He's just like, no, that's a big door. Like he's very calm about it because he didn't grow up with Kevin Flynn his whole life where any other actor might've just been like, oh, let me try to imitate that. Even though they wouldn't know that kind of mannerisms because they haven't seen him since they were a kid. I thought Garrett Hedlund did a fine job. I, I love the fact that he does bring that 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 swagger, that cockiness that, that Jeff Bridges had, of course, in the original. One thing I need to, to, to point out, though, and this is just a, a scripting thing as opposed to his performance thing. Um, we know he's a computer whiz. That's that's, a, you know, not in question because of, you know, being able to hack the system and get the, you know, the Encom OS 12 because there's a 12 on the box out into the public for free. We get that. And we know he's athletic. So, you know, surviving you know, the games on the grid is not going to be a problem. By the way, uh, the film was in 2010. We're going to spoil it if you haven't figured out, you know, through yeah. all of our episodes now. So just be forewarned. <laughs> but of course, if you're listening to this, you probably already watched the movie anyways. But here's the thing. Part of Tron is about playing games, right? And surviving these games. We never actually see him be a gamer. I mean, yes, he kind of looks at the Tron arcade game when he goes to Flynn's arcade, you know, to, you know, 
follow up on the page, you know, that, that, that Alan got, I just, I, I wish they'd explore that a little bit more. Like rather than try to put the quarter into Tron, you know, there's, we never see him be a gamer per se. Cause you think at least a gamer would have something at his, at his, you know, at his abode, whatever you want to call it there, that little parking garage that he lives in. His place is also Dumont, which is the guy that gets them to the IO tower. So they, um, in the first movie, so Tron can converse with Alan one. But the other thing too, given that he still ticked that his father disappeared and, you know, in his mind is probably off chilling in Aruba or wherever kind of thing. You would think that he might actually be almost, you know, not hesitant, but, but almost rejecting of, you know, technology in that gamer culture. Like I, I get why he's not really, you know, involved in Encom. He doesn't want to be, he's just the, the majority shareholder and he's basically doing his best to undermine it every now and then. But I, I just, there, there wasn't as much almost, you know, hesitation into going back into the arcade. I get that. And you also mentioned the gaming thing where he actually doesn't have any confidence in playing the games until the light cycle race because of the Ducati. So when he's doing that first discourse thing, he doesn't know what the hell's going on. He's just, we just know he's athletic and that's it. So maybe that's not from games. And maybe the whole thing with the light cycle is like, oh, well, I ride the Ducati. I've played the video game. So discourse, even though there was a discourse video game, um, if he was standing facing the Tron game to his right was a Disc Wars game, he would know it, but he's not, maybe he's not a gamer. Maybe he's just a survivor. Quite possibly. Quite possibly. I mean, we, anyone who jumps off a building and does the parachuting thing, maybe a little too close to the street, but it looked cool on camera. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like that, that, that moment in cinema sense, he survives this. Ding. But <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, but, but that was from the Batman. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But he just, like, how many times does he roll over and he just gets up like, oh, okay. Anyway, yep. back he, to Tron. He, he survives this. <laughs> Ding. Yep. <laughs> but we've talked about the son. Now it's time to talk about the father. Jeff Bridges as Kevin Flynn and also as a de-aged Clue. Uh, how was he in both of these roles? Because obviously it's two different performances from him. Let's start with, you know, the Kevin Flynn performance. How was this? I loved his, I've been stuck here for 20 something years um just almost zen thing like just that like i'm screwed here i'm never getting out and how he's almost made peace with it and he's got his companionship with cora so i thought he nailed that but also when he starts like talking to sam about the real world and little things like that you see that like that smart ass smile come back on his face that little glimmer in his eyes like oh hey man yeah which he doesn't have at first so it's nice to kind of like watch the evolution of Kevin Flynn back to the human Kevin Flynn that might get out of the grid. It does feel a little, you know, on the nose a bit that he's in these, you know, for lack of a better term, profit robes. And he is, you know, the creator of, of the world that he lives in. I, I just wonder if he's, you know, resigned to being stuck in the grid and, you know, basically, you know, yoda himself like, a, you know, like he's on Dagobah and just hiding away from everything. It, it feels odd for him to be in these almost, you know, with the with the prayer beads kind of thing around his wrist profit robe. It's kind of culty, but um, once 
he goes back onto the grid and he's got the robe and it's it's a bit more of a reluctant return to that life and to try to 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 save sam i i just it's interesting too because he kind of feels a little hippie-esque in some of the some of the the scripting like you know talking about creating you know everything is digital jazz and you know there there's certain scripting issues here where i'm just like did I remember Tron right? Was Kevin Flynn always a bit of a, a, a hippie nature? Like, maybe I'm missing something. I think he was, though, because he, he was very freewheeling. And even the way he was just like, when uh, Alan and uh, Laura show up at the arcade in the first movie, he's just walking around, changes his shirt for no reason. Like, that's a, kind of a hippiest thing to do. Like, I'm just going to get topless and blah, blah, blah. And then, hey, you're my ex-girlfriend with your new boyfriend. Hey, does she leave her clothes on the floor? So there's that... There's that freewheeling hippie about him. Like, I, I don't know about hippie, but yeah, there's that freewheeler, like just life happens once kind of attitude about him. So I think that was kind of consistent. But then as Clue, you know, as, as a, a, a de-aged version of him, and I thought they actually did that very, very well. They used the same technology where it's like, you know, he's got the cameras on and all the dots and, you know, Jeff Bridges would act the scene and then they'd have the body double that kind of looked a little bit like him when he was younger do the same scene trying to you know react the same way as jeff bridges did and then they just you know connect all the dots literally and figuratively um clue's menacing in this clue has is you know not messing around i love the difference between the two but how was he as clue for you I thought he was great as Clue. I disagree about the motion capture because uh, some of the de-aging doesn't... You could you could tell that they were still in their early stages of it, and they didn't really nail it until Sam Jackson and Captain Marvel. Um, that being said, performance-wise, yeah, uh, Clue is not the Clue that we meet in the first movie. He's uh, He's upset. He wants to know why his creator left him. He wants to know why he was abandoned for, you know... You know, what does Flynn say? Like minutes here, like or minutes there, hours here. So Clue just wants to put together the perfect system, but his creator is just like off, like dilly-dallying somewhere else. I just said dilly-dallying. And <laughs> he just, he's jealous. He, he wants his creator with him. So to, to get that just over-emotional about it. I thought he was great, and I thought he played two different roles very well. Not my favorite Bridges performances, but is there such thing as a bad Jeff Bridges performance? <laughs> but it, it does feel like Clue's almost, you know, that, that angry child lashing out at he his is. father kind of thing, which, you know, it does make sense. I, I will say, you know, you say that the, the, the de-aging doesn't always match up. I'll give them this. For 2010... The fact that you mentioned Captain Marvel, that's like nine years later. Oh, yeah. No, I understand that. I'm just saying like, but there's there's things that like were problematic even to us back then. Just uh, being, you know, just being me. It's not the end of the world. It's It doesn't ruin the movie. It's just that you could tell like upper face area, especially by the eyes. There's not a lot of motion. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, 
Even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Okay, let's move on to Olivia Wilde as Cora. Um... How is she for you? Not not just Olivia Wilde, but the concept of Cora being, for lack of a better term, digital immaculate conception. Because that seems to be how they're you know referring the ISOs. You know, it's like Deckard and uh, what's her name? Oh, Rachel. Had a child. Right? Ra- yes. Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Deckard and Rachel. They had a child, even though one or both of them. Ha. I thought I liked the idea of it because it's kind of like a glitch in the matrix, you know, like it just your computer glitches every now and then if you get a power surge, kind of like, all right, so think of the first movie when they're drinking that, we'll call it water, but like they're just, they're by an electrical outlet. (laughs) That's really what, (laughs) what that would be, right? So it's kind of the same thing. Like you get a power surge or something like that. Like, wait, where the hell did these things come from? So it's probably like, you type something, it goes into a cache, but you don't delete the cache, but the cache like keeps doing whatever it's doing. I didn't, I didn't mind it at all. And I don't know a lot about computers. So somewhere out there, there's a computer guy going, dude, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. And you're right. <laughs> but I'm just saying for the sake of this movie, it's, it's an idea um, that the cache has grown. Well, I mean, there's the thing too. Like, even if you go back to the you know the original Tron, you have to think that these are physical bodies that are zapped into a digital environment. Do they still need to eat? Do they, you know, is is do they need that kind of nourishment? Are they creating food like it's you know the the replicator on the Enterprise? It's there's a question there. There's so many questions there. But and also, might I pose a badger question? 
Because Badger had his theory, I'm sorry, on Breaking Bad, Badger had his theory that every time that somebody was beamed, they were killed, but their particles recreated another them. So they're just all clones of clones of clones of clones. Did the same thing happen to Kevin Flynn and Sam Flynn? Which also speaks to Cora, who was created inside. What did she become? It's interesting, too, because if, if you think about it, if, if you're beamed, you're basically turned into code and then rebuilt. So the question becomes, then, if you happen to get killed on, on the away mission for Star Trek, you know, that's how we're using the whole beaming thing. If you're wearing a red shirt, it's guaranteed. Yes, but if you are basically digitized and then re, you know, undigitized, if you will, is there a backup saved in the system? Can you be digitized back from the original beam point? Are you just in digital storage? I, I, I wonder if, you know, so many needless red shirts were, were left behind and clearing the cash. But it's... Are they in San Junipero? <laughs> oh, we're not going to go down this road, are we? Um, no. no. We're, we're not talking Blade Runner. We're talking Tron here. Um, oh, oh, I was talking Black Mirror. Oh, yes. I know, but still, because she was also in Blade Runner and we've compared... Oh, yes. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes. And, it's well, it's all a know, shared universe yes. in the digital cache. I, see, I can't... I can't... Oh, and uh, maybe we're in the digital cache and now we're like trying to think of that that way. Are we really on the grid or is the grid really around us? It's hard to say. Um, <laughs> well, the red pill and the blue pill, my friend. Okay. Before before I put this out there, I'm going to ask you, where would you rather be, the matrix or the grid? Where would you rather be? <laughs> Anywhere. Uh, the grid. Yeah. D- despite the, you know, the you're probably going to die on in, in the games anyways, I think I'd still choose the grid. Matrix is a Hell little yeah. too real. You still have to go to work in the Matrix. But yeah. <laughs> my my thing with Cora here, and I, there, there's another character that I really need to talk about this, but just for Cora for a bit there. There's times when, you know, her interactions with Sam are feel like they're almost for comedic event, like when they're when they're looking at the books and you know she's you know she's asking about Jules Verne. It's like, oh, have you met him? What's he like? Kind of thing. Like yeah. It feels a little out of character for Cora and for a lot of people on the grid. But then there's times when she's like, you know, straight up Black Widow action style hero. Um, I, I don't think Cora needed the comedic beats that she got, but but did it feel out of place for you? Yes and no, because I know exactly what you mean, but that's why I said earlier, she's very inquisitive. She wants to know everything possible. Like even like, you know, asking him, what does a sunset look like? Or, you know, the whole thing about loving Jules Verne books. It's just, she wants to know everything. So like, yeah, it plays off as comedic because yeah, that's, you know, it's a comedic beat to go for, but it's also just genuinely, she doesn't know. She doesn't know that Jules Verne is dead. Or at least she should though, now that I think about it. So maybe there's a tiny, tiny flaw in the writing. I mean, I, I, I can appreciate that a computer program, even an ISO, would be curious and want to gather information that would make sense and you know her wide-eyed wonder in those moments does work uh just maybe not as comedic beats but let, let's move on to bruce boxletner who like jeff bridges came back from the original tron so returning is alan bradley uh love that they brought the two back unfortunately no yes. Cindy morgan but how was bruce boxletner even though it's kind of a book-ending role when you consider he's only at the beginning at the end of the film, really, um, how is he for you? 
I liked him better as Tron than as Alan because Alan, Alan in the first movie, like he's not as confident and he's just super confident, which I mean, he's also older and like he, he gets the company from Flynn, their best friend. Well, they become best friends, I'm assuming. Um, but he's a little too confident, but when he's Tron, and I think this is where the problem is like he plays Tron and he plays Alan and it's not quite as busy. So he doesn't like, you know what I mean? He's like, he probably did like two weeks of filming on the movie. So it's kind of like everything was done all at once. Cause he's not in it that much that he was a little too much like Tron in the real world. But when he was Tron, he like really nailed it. Just the way he would say certain things or just the way he would turn his head and give a look. Loved the way he played Tron. Mm. I will say, and, and you and I talked about this before we were, you know, planned on recording the show. Uh, Bruce Boxletner and Olivia Wilde are the only two actors from this movie who returned to the animated series Tron Uprising that Disney put out. It was like a year or two after this or something like that. I personally love that animated series. I think it's great. Uh, highly recommend. And it's got a stellar cast like voice cast for that movie for that series it's it's wonderful uh also available on disney plus along with the other tron movies let's move on to bo garrett uh she played gem one of the four sirens here but really gem was the only siren that had any meat to the role although if you look very carefully one of the sirens is serinda swan who a lot of people will remember as medusa from marvel's inhumans but Bo Garrett as Jem, how how were how was she and the sirens for you? I loved the choreography of the four of them just getting him dressed. Like everything had its own specific move that they all did in sync. And I thought that was awesome. I thought she did fine as a uh double agent. It it does make you question how how much does Clue know about everything that goes on because obviously the you know when they're changing sam's clothes and they're looking at each other and you know like you know he's he's different there's something different about him kind of thing it makes you wonder how interconnected clue is with everything else that goes on on the grid um and the fact that she's working with zeus in order to you know kind of pull those like it's it's very intriguing what she does uh i, I do agree the choreography especially when they start walking backwards at the end yeah and it's a very almost robotic style walk very very cool it's, it's, it looked like something that they would you know film almost in reverse and then play it backwards it was very cool but i mentioned zeus i need to put this out there i freaking love michael sheen i think he's great i think he can do no wrong Except for maybe this role. Every, really? Everyone on the grid seems to come at this with a very serious tone. With a, with a you know, for lack of a better term, they are all programs, right? So it's a very computerized thing. He comes in completely flamboyant, completely over the top. Compl- you know, in almost any other movie, I could see this character working. But I'm, for me... It just seemed out of place for for Tron. But how was Michael Sheen for you? Because I have a feeling we're about to disagree on this one. We are completely going to disagree. Because what I think his programming is definitely about old movies and old style things. Kind of like the bartender who's also like, you know, the 
the secret code guy, you know what I mean? And even like that whole scene where they're fighting and he's doing like the Charlie Chaplin walk, uh, there's something when he starts talking to Sam, I can't remember the imitation it was, but I was like, oh wow, that was like John Wayne or something like that. I can't remember who it was. But this is a program that's all about pre-first movie kind of behavior. So I thought he made that work. Is it my favorite Michael Sheen role? No. That's still Frost Nixon. But do I think he nails what that character kind of represents? Yeah, for the most part. Like, yelling, come meet the son of a maker is a little overdone. But I, I'm i with you, though. I, I, I'm i not going to go and watch the Twilight movies because he's in it. I mean, like, everybody's got to put food on the table or lose a bet. I don't know what she had to do. <laughs> but... I, I'm like you. I always like him, especially in this. When I saw that he was going to be in it, or actually when he showed up on screen, I was like, "Oh my god, yes!" So, I guess we do disagree. But I hopefully like like give his scene another shot and like kind of understand he's coming from that kind of background programming. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I could see that if other characters represented. Um, video game NPC style, um, ca- you know, characteristics or traits. You, you think to Free Guy, which is you know, it as as fun a movie as that is. It's also a very smart movie in that you have a lot of these NPC tropes in the game. Uh, you know, Guy himself included. So you could see why there would be different kind of characteristics. And if you had someone who was very like an over-the-top, you know, mid-tier boss-level kind of character, you take Zeus from Tron and put him in Free Guy, he makes absolute total sense, and I love it. But in here, the problem is he's the only character who acts like that. You know, yes, you had Daft Punk in a, in a bit of a, a cameo DJ in the party and whatnot. No one else is showing any other characteristics aside from you know a, an interesting level of seriousness across the board it's just it's out there it's different it's not horrible i know personally it just feels a little out of place but again that's just me but i could easily see zeus in free guy that would be phenomenal i need to see zeus in free guy too oh make that happen someone make that happen i don't make a good film Make a great film. <laughs> uh, James Frain, who played Jarvis, not the Iron Man computer, but basically the same kind of role to Clue, uh, the guy who is basically you know discount David Spade in the uh, in in the in the grid for for him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's all of a sudden making sense now, isn't it? Jarvis uh, is discount David Spade, but how was he for you? I thought he was just fine because it also sets up the kind of uh, the the God complex that Clue has that, you know, when Jarvis comes up to him, he's like, excellent words, sir. I hope my delivery was satisfactory. Like, oh, my God, like, you're such a kiss ass. And then even when uh, Sam comes in, you know, long live the users, he's, a, he's just a big kiss ass wimp. And I thought his performance was kind of spot on. If, if we're going to justify Michael Sheen's Zeus as having these, you know, over-the-top characteristics as opposed to everybody else. James Frame might be the one that actually justifies it, too, because here is, you know, a program who is sniveling, ass-kissing, you know, 
condescending and to to Sam and you know there are there are many more human like characteristics in Jarvis than most of the other characters so maybe that justifies Zeus. Maybe maybe I'm I'm being a little too critical on the Zeus role. And again, it's nothing towards Michael Sheen. I get exactly what he was trying to do. But you also make a strong point about how you feel about Zeus, though. So it's not that like you're wrong or right. I mean, it's an opinion thing. But now that you've got Jarvis in your head, you're like, oh, yeah. Not like with Tony Stark, but Jarvis in his head. <laughs> I'm starting to think that Jarvis was was very aptly named. Um, <laughs> But yeah. let, let's get into the actual making of this film, though. The production design. Like, let's be honest. The original Tron is iconic. It is absolutely iconic. This is also, I, I think, takes what was made and really upped it a notch. Like, this is, the, they brought their A game in making this film. Oh, yeah. They had to. They had no other choice. It had to look better because technology had grown and <laughs> technology had grown and the puppy was getting bigger um that's from billy madison sorry <laughs> the uh the look had to feel right it had to feel like oh wow i'm in the grid and how they accomplished that was pretty cool mm-hmm. like i i think back to the first tron right and they spent a lot of time on you know, the whole how the laser was, you know, pixelating and digitizing uh, Kevin before, you know, tossing him into the grid. Here, it's like, okay, we've been there. We've done that. Now, let's get right into the coolness factor. But, but even with the original, you know, with the Disney logo at the beginning of the film and how they Tron, Tronized that whole, you know, opening animation, they knew right off the bat exactly what the assignment was to the point, though, but it, it really... Even the design, how the floor, right, on the street was in hexagonal shape and almost a, like a, a tactical RPG style game. Like they clearly understood exactly what this culture was supposed to be. And anyone who sits there and says, well, it's not Tron and, you know, not everything is glowing. No, it's better. It's absolutely, it looks tangible, right even when you know they're just in a blue screen room kind of thing the world feels real around them it doesn't feel like a half rendered kind of thing it is stunning i agree a zillion percent my only big disappointment is when they're on the solar sailor i kept looking for the mickey mouse and i i saw no mickey mouse i did hear a pac-man earlier in the film but i saw no mickey mouse there was no mickey mouse I'm almost kind of happier that they didn't, though, because then it would have felt like, you know, the Adam Sandler movie Pixels, and that just would have been, you know, we don't need an homage to all the video games. Tron is has its own Well, no, but what I'm saying is that, though. like, you know, in that first that first movie, they're, they're on the Solar Sailor, like, you know, heading towards wherever, towards the MCP, and, like, for half a second on the ground, there's a Mickey Mouse, like Mickey's head. So I was kind of like looking for that silhouette in the uh, clouds, which I'm sure we'll get to at some point. <laughs> I, I think there might be a reference in there somewhere, but it's very, very subtle. Uh, I personally have not seen it yet, but it's it's possible it's there. But I love the fact that it's almost a self-contained world and they don't have, try to bring in any of the tropes. Like, you know, 
as yeah. cool as I thought Ready Player One was, it's like they decided to grab the kitchen sink and dump it into some of those scenes with as many references as there were. Dude, <laughs> stop, stop. Because seeing the glaive on a movie theater screen, and I'm sorry, seeing the glaive in 3D on an IMAX movie theater screen is the best thing about that movie. Oh, absolutely. One of the only good things. Like, now, the book does the same thing, except um, the difference between the movie and the book. Let's just say, actually, I'll list the similarities between the movie and the book. They're called Ready Player One. And <laughs> that's my review of Ready Player One, the film. And But I loved the glaive, sorry. Oh. But I, I see what you're going for. I, I, I know what you mean. Yeah, I mean... But, but also, Flynn mentions that he, he destroyed the old world and took Tron in from it. Yeah, so it's basically Tron 2.0, <clears throat> you know, starting from scratch, much like Free City 2 in uh, in uh, in Free Guy. Uh, yeah, 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 I went there again, didn't I? Um, it did, but how do you not? I mean, it may, now those could be in the same... Now, they are going to be making Tron Ares, starring Jared yes. Leto. And, yes. of, of course, at the end of this film, uh, it feels like the grid is almost kind of, you know, wiped out from existence... You know, because, uh, you know, once once uh, Sam and Cora make it back to the real world, I wonder if the world's going to feel the same as Legacy or if they're going to redo it much like they, they changed from Tron to Tron Legacy. Maybe. I And I have some theories about what they could do, because keep in mind now, like, they can go in to the grid, make Flynn. Sam has Flynn's everything on his necklace thing, they can bring Flynn back into the real world. But does that bring everything else into the real world where the real world becomes, it's kind of like uh, Stranger Things at this point. Like now, now both worlds are going to mesh. What could possibly happen? Is Jared Leto a vampire or does he make replicants? So since we're talking Tron Aries, you know, and we, we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, announcing that you're going to do a Tron sequel, uh, based on how much people loved, you know, the original movie, they're taking a big, big risk because it's not like you know, I'm not, I'm not saying Jared Leto's a bad actor, but I'm not saying he's a great actor. If you're he's gonna Tron Aries, he had, he's had, he has, he has his moments. He also had Morbius, so there's that. But but he had Dallas Buyers Club. Hmm. Hmm. But Morbius, but yeah, um, Tron Aries. As someone who loves the you know the original and this film, do you have? You know, I, I you you even mentioned it yourself. Expectations are the the bane of any new thing that comes out. But what are your thoughts on this Tron Aries announcement? Is Jared Leto going to be the son of Sam and Cora? Although, wait, no, that's because that's what that's only been. 13 years, or well, 15 years at that point. No, he's too young. I, uh, whatever they want to give to me, I'll, I'll be happy with, or I won't be, but I won't know. I'm not going to, I have no expectations, even with, uh, Legacy. I was like, oh, cool. I can't wait to see what they do with Tron. And that's usually like where it ends for me. It took years to get this discipline. So I, <laughs> I don't want to screw it up by going like, oh, it should do this and it should do that and it should do this and it should do that. Like, no, I, I did that for a lot of movies that disappointed me that when I went back and watched them for what they are, um, I was wrong in not liking them. And sometimes I was wrong for liking movies. But 
Okay, so so let me put it this way then. You know, and to try and, you know, to draw a comparison to Star Wars, you know, there was a while where everyone was eventually like, you know, it'd be nice to have a story that doesn't have a Skywalker in it. Um, and then we eventually got that with Andor. With Tron Ares, would you be happier or pissed off if Jared Leto and everyone else in the movie have nothing to do with any of the Flynn's aside from the fact that they might be on the grid? Wait, what? No. What do you... Dude, we're talking about Tron. Yeah. We're not talking about... But we're also talking about a third Tron. Well, fourth Tron. Let's count a, a, a fifth Tron. Because well, you mentioned Tron 2.0 earlier, and I, I hear that the uh, video game's got a great story. Mm-hmm. And that came out in the late 90s, I believe. So, we'll... Well, what? I, you're, you're entering a big <laughs> error, my friend. End of line. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see if we're going to be talking about Tron Aries on this show somewhere down the road when it eventually comes out. Uh, but it has come time. So, Sean, who is your MVP of Tron Legacy? Daft Punk. You know, it's funny, but that's my MVP too. Right on. <laughs> Look at that, man. We got another solitary shell here. Right? That's a deep cut. That, yeah, that's a deep cut. Nobody's going to know that. <laughs> well, they'll oh, no- actually, they are. They, they will because they would have hopefully gone over to listen to our episode talking about Dream Theater over on There Can Only Be One, which you can find at Twitter at OnlyOneCast or on our website at NotThatBadCast.com. Um, I'm, I'm going to be very, very, very honest here. When it was announced that Daft Punk was doing the uh, the soundtrack to this film, I was initially hesitant and skeptical of how good it was going to be. I was not, you know, I don't think I was ready for, you know, a two hour movie that was, you know, going to sound like around the world for two hours. (laughs) And if it was that, we would definitely be talking about Tron Legacy and Daft Punk would not be our MVPs. But they... It takes a lot for a sound for a score. Let's call it what it is. It's a score. Yes. To be iconic. And maybe even more iconic than the movie itself. There's a few scores that have done it. You know, I think you can argue that John Williams score is absolutely iconic when it comes to Star Wars. I yes. think I think the Jaws score for as sparse and as messing as it is, is maybe even more iconic than the movie itself. Yes. I think even Danny Elfman's score for for the original Batman film, you could put it up there as being one of those ones that kind of humps, even like the Superman, right? And the, the, the original Star Trek theme. Some of these scores are Here's completely the thing, iconic. Though. But yeah, you're da- bringing up things where where John Williams says the name of the character musically, like Superman, Indiana, Indiana Jones. He that's his thing. That's what he does, man. But I know what you're saying. Mm-hmm. These, it, I would say that this score should be on that same level of iconic as everything you just mentioned. Star Trek, they're flying a ship. I'm with you. <laughs> I can't believe we just compared Daft Punk to John Williams, but here we are. And I think it's completely warranted. Sean, thank you so much for joining in and talking Tron Legacy with me. I, I'll i be honest, when I started this podcast, uh, there were certain movies that were 
um, you know, on my list of movies that needed to be covered, this was one of them. I also get a chuckle of the fact that you mentioned The Glaive and Crawl is also on that list and we'll get to Crawl eventually one day. Uh, but Sean, before we go, please take a moment, let us know where our listeners can find you and your music. I can be found on Twitter at Sean Faust or I can be found on Linktree, Sean Faust Music. And I would love it if you would check out my music. It's not, as, it's not up there with the works of, say, John Williams and Alexander Courage and Daft Punk and Wendy Carlos and Hans Zimmer, as we have mentioned throughout this episode, my favorite music actually is film scores. I just, I don't write it, so I write progressive rock and alternative rock and sometimes just acoustic folksy stuff. So please check out my music and I hope you enjoy it. John, thank you. And to our listeners, thank you. Now, you guys know the drill. If there's a movie out there that you think is unfairly maligned or is just so bad that there's no way in hell that we can find anything good to say about it, hit us up on Twitter at NotThatBadCast or go to our website at NotThatBadCast.com. Let us know and we will watch it, we will dissect it, and we will find the good things to say because we are looking for those A grades in B movies. Until next time, I'm Jay. Sean, once again, thank you. This is It's Not That Bad. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.